Getting out front of his own possible indictment story, Donald Trump spills the beans on social media. A fall from leftist grace. Daniel Ortega's all-out assault on journalism in Nicaragua. And U.S. media coverage from 20 years ago. Day two of the war objectives, have they been reached? It hasn't aged well. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. When it came out last weekend, it looked like breaking news. The source, former U.S. President Donald Trump, he posted that he was about to be indicted over money that he paid to a former adult film star named Stormy Daniels to keep quiet about an affair that she says she had with Trump. If the indictment goes ahead, and it is yet to happen, Donald Trump would become the first U.S. president to face criminal charges. Our focus is on the second half of Trump's message, the part where he urges his supporters to protest, to, quote, take our nation back. That conjured up images of January 6th, 2021, when a violent pro-Trump mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. And it will have, or at least should have, alarmed social media sites like Twitter and Facebook that recently reinstated Trump's accounts after shutting them down following that insurrection in Washington. There's a lot to get to in this story, starting with the Stormy Daniels case. When one considers all of the crimes Donald Trump has been accused of, inciting an insurrection on Capitol Hill. Donald Trump could face criminal proceedings over the Capitol riots. After trying to have the 2020 election results overturned in Georgia. Former President Trump's efforts to get Georgia state officials to overturn his election defeat. Taking and then refusing to hand back classified U.S. government documents. In the investigation into Donald Trump, over those classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. The first indictment he is expected to face, of all things, is over hush money paid to an adult film star, Stormy Daniels. Former President Trump could face criminal charges over his alleged role in a payment of hush money. Given the ways this former president has tested American democracy, that $130,000 payment seems like small change, an odd place for the indictments to start. So this payment happened six and a half years ago. We learned about it more than five years ago. It obviously, you know, it feels somewhat small in relation to all of the other uh, legal issues that have surrounded Donald Trump. But even though there are these sort of much larger issues, it's not really the job of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to try to manage all these issues or to uh, navigate all these sort of national political concerns. So there's been some commentary among what I've called the legal pundit industrial complex, I think particularly on MSNBC. So I agree with Lisa, it's, it's the weakest case of the three. Worrying the that this case, of all the cases against Trump, is going first. Uh, I think possibly because they view the matter of hush money to a porn star as less serious than inciting a mob to ransack the Capitol. And I think that's kind of a dangerous argument because that's not really how the legal system, which has kind of multiple separate jurisdictions, does or at least should work. Donald Trump posted about a looming indictment on Truth Social, the online platform he founded after being banned from Twitter, Facebook and YouTube in 2021. He pleaded to his supporters in all caps. The far and away leading Republican candidate and former president will be arrested next week. Protest. Take our nation back. I, I will not tolerate fake news no more. 
In light of the history and the January 6th insurrection, that last line got the attention of police in New York City, where the Stormy Daniels case is being steered by District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a prosecutor elected after running as a progressive. Following his Truth Social post, Trump reportedly told his advisors that if arrested, he hopes to be handcuffed and walked into custody to create a spectacle for the media, the news networks both for him and against him. You've got an incredible division in American media at this point. You've got networks that have traditionally been quite sympathetic to Trump attacking the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. You politically corrupt leftist ideologue. That's what he is. And the show after show, night after night, suggesting that this is a political prosecution and nothing more than that. On the other hand, you've got media outlets that have been traditionally very critical of Trump, speculating that Trump himself might be inciting violence. Uh, they could come in with explosives. They could come in with Molotov cocktails. Trump has only about 5 million followers on Truth Social, whereas I believe he has around 85 million followers still on Twitter. So it would look like Truth Social is not a very powerful or amplifying venue for his message, except that journalists continue to report on what Trump is posting on Truth Social. So he gets the amplification boost whenever he posts especially controversial messages. The New York Times described Trump's post on Truth Socials having unmistakable echoes uh, of a tweet that he posted ahead of the Capitol insurrection on January 6th when he said, uh, be there, will be wild. This time, you could argue that the language he used, you know, in all caps, protest, take our nation back, uh, was an even more direct incitement to violence than, uh, than ahead of the Capitol insurrection. Which begs the question, what does Silicon Valley make of Trump's recent social media act? After banning him for more than two years post-January 6th, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter have all reinstated the former president, although he has yet to post on Twitter. Will his call to take the nation back have those tech giants thinking twice? Getting back on Facebook, getting back on YouTube, ultimately, if he chooses to, getting back on Twitter is a, a big deal for Trump because it allows him to speak directly to his supporters. As regards YouTube and Facebook, if you've got somebody who has abused a platform, you wrestle with the question of whether to allow them to go back on that platform and potentially spread misinformation or disinformation. It's a big challenge. You know, I'm a little skeptical in general of uh, kicking people off these platforms in an attempt to silence them, uh, particularly prominent uh, politicians and political figures. Um, but you know, Facebook, I mean, this is a terribly run company that has managed to acquire way too much influence and responsibility in this country. My suspicion is that putting Trump back on the platform has much more to do with improving their bottom line and increasing their profits than with any high-minded civic principle. They're now saying that they judge the political climate to be less volatile, less violent, and therefore Trump's allowed to, to come back on. But Facebook has also said that Trump's allowed to lie about the 2020 election now, but not about the 2024 election. I mean, to me, that's a meaningless distinction. Lying about the last one with impunity is about undermining the next one. It's about undermining the idea of free and fair elections in the US, really across the board. America's comeback starts right now. Trump is already in campaign mode for the 2024 election and social media, where he has more than 150 million followers, could be critical for his fundraising. 
For profile raising and editorial backing in general, Trump has relied on Fox, the most watched 24-hour news channel in the US. But Fox is in the midst of a legal storm of its own. A $1.6 billion lawsuit brought against the network by Dominion Voting Systems, which alleges Fox damaged the company's business by repeatedly reporting it had tampered with its tabulating machines to tilt the 2020 election in favor of Joe Biden and against Trump. As the potential trial approaches, Fox has gone quiet on the Dominion story. On the Stormy Daniels case and the indictment, not so much. You know, I don't want to live in a world where, you know, paying porn actresses hush money is considered a crime. That's sexist, right? You know, on his primetime show this week, Tucker Carlson um, offered a staunch defense of Donald Trump, arguing that there's not really a legal case here. But if Trump is indicted for sending money to Stormy Daniels, well, you'll be watching the abuse of law enforcement power. And, you know, Carlson's texts and communications from the post-election period um, have been the subject of a lot of media uh, coverage recently because those materials came out during the uh, discovery process in the Dominion lawsuit and they revealed that Carlson had been bad-mouthing Trump when he wasn't on air. It appears now, though, at least, that um, Carlson and other folks on Fox are going to be able to fall right back into the pattern of defending Trump. Yeah, they better not put my president in prison. He represents 74 million Americans. And if he's the nominee, you're putting 74 million votes in prison. Over the last year or so, Fox has tried to move away from Trump. Uh, they've tended to focus more on the broader conservative movement and particularly on potential or active conservative presidential candidates. The problem for them is that an awfully lot of Trump supporters are also Fox viewers, and they're very interested in this story. And so the Fox anchors and, and reporters are in a challenging situation. If they don't amplify what Trump's saying, then those folks might move to smaller but growing conservative networks. And so for Fox, they're really walking a tightrope here. Look, Fox still has a challenge. They need to keep their audience. They are a for-profit company that is selling entertainment as news. This city streets are a disaster. So it's the former president he goes after? Yep, it's Alvin Bragg's repellent adventure. And in order to sell that entertainment, they have to continue to be provocative. They still need to keep pushing the same kinds of messaging and undermining of systems like the judicial system. And I personally feel quite harmful for our democracy, but it's good for ratings. Within days of the International Criminal Court's indictment of Vladimir Putin over alleged war crimes in Ukraine, the Kremlin orchestrated a photo op with the president of China. The message, Russia does not stand alone. Johanna Hus is here with more. Well, Richard, we saw a Russian charm offensive this past week when Vladimir Putin hosted Chinese President Xi Jinping. Now, 13 months into the war in Ukraine, Russia is increasingly isolated and needed a show of solidarity with a powerful ally. Two countries Russia has grown increasingly reliant politically and economically on Beijing, and voices on the Kremlin-controlled airwaves celebrated the meeting. On Chinese state TV, however, the messaging was more pragmatic. Xi Jinping stated, China 
Chinese outlets provided relatively little coverage of the meeting. China has recently tried to position itself as a peace broker, a neutral player, rather than a backer of Russia's war on Ukraine. Last month, China published a 12-point peace plan calling for negotiations in a ceasefire, but no provision for now that Russia withdraw its forces. The U.S. State Department called it a stalling tactic that would allow Moscow to rest and refit its troops. And that may be why Putin welcomed Beijing's approach whilst blaming the West and NATO for not being ready for peace. Thanks, Joe. Turning to Latin America now, where in the early 1980s, Daniel Ortega was the poster child of leftists everywhere, a socialist revolutionary who helped overthrow a U.S.-backed military dictatorship. He's now President Ortega. And under his rule, Nicaragua has become a living hell for journalists. Just last month, 11 of them were stripped of their citizenship. All of them had produced journalism critical of the Nicaraguan authorities. With foreign reporters banned from entering, the work of journalists inside the country is crucial but can be life-threatening. Arbitrary arrests, harassment and death threats have become the norm. Newsrooms have been raided, dozens ordered to close. Many journalists have sought sanctuary abroad. What remains is a media landscape that's dominated by Ortega and his vice president, Rosario Murillo, who happens to be his wife. The Listening Post's Tarek Nafa now on a one-time revolutionary turned enemy of the press and the journalists still showing signs of resistance in Nicaragua. They threatened to burn down my house with me and my children inside. They come after you from all sides. I have lost my voice and I have also lost my identity as a journalist because we are so afraid of being imprisoned or losing our lives. For the few critical journalists left inside Nicaragua, those resisting the government's efforts to turn the country into an information black hole, reporting anonymously is the only option they have left. A merciless crackdown on dissent means journalism is practiced by stealth, with reporters foregoing a byline, fearful of the danger it may bring. Anyone who wants to report outside the red lines set by the government of President Daniel Ortega has to be silenced. We can't do journalism in the open. If you try to record an interview in public, the police will be there in a matter of seconds. We are under constant surveillance. We are afraid. My name no longer appears on any of my work. I am a golpista, the word used by the regime to describe anyone who doesn't conform to the government's agenda. And this journalist is not the only so-called golpista threatened with jail time or worse. In 2018, spontaneous nationwide protests were violently suppressed by security forces. More than 300 people were killed. Thousands more were injured or arrested and imprisoned. Independent news outlets have paid the price for reporting that story. Investigative journalist Angel Jajona was shot and killed while broadcasting live at a protest. Dozens of media outlets and NGOs have since been raided and shut down. The small number of journalists who've decided to stay in the country live a precarious existence. 
Many of those journalists have explained to me that they have the suitcases ready, the papers ready, the children and the families know that at any given moment they may have to flee the country and go across mountains and grow across dangerous areas where they can be caught and then end up in jail. Life is very difficult for Nicaraguans who are on exile, and it's not just journalists. You have more than 200,000 Nicaraguans who had had to flee the country because otherwise they would have end up in jail or would have end up being killed by the Ortega Murillo regime. In the mass exodus that followed the violence in 2018, some 140 journalists fled the country. Among them was Carlos Fernando Chumorro, an outspoken critic of the government and member of a political and media family that has long stood in opposition to the Ortegas. He now lives and works in exile from Costa Rica. I went into exile for the first time in 2019 to avoid being taken as a prisoner after my newsroom, Confidencial, had been raided and occupied by the police. And I came to Costa Rica to preserve my freedom and to keep reporting from here. Then I went back to Nicaragua in late November 2019, after some of our colleagues, journalists, who had been in prison, had been released. So we said, OK, we're going to test the government. In 2021, I had to leave again because my newsroom was assaulted for a second time uh, because they also imposed censorship and they uh, took into prison more than 40 uh, civic leaders, political leaders, presidential candidates, journalists, uh, businessmen, uh, human rights defenders. That roundup included Juan Lorenzo Holman Chamorro, the publisher of La Prensa, one of the oldest newspapers in Latin America. La Prensa's offices were raided and occupied by police last year, after Holman Chamorro was convicted of money laundering, despite no credible evidence being produced by the authorities. The paper's last remaining employees were forced to leave the country in July. What's happened to La Prensa is indicative of a wider pattern of measures against the press, what local journalists call economic asphyxia, a mix of arrests, harassment, occupying newsrooms and confiscating equipment. They did every, everything to, um, to finish them off, including not allowing them to have paper, not allowing them to have ink, uh, to the point that in the end, La Prensa, the last printed newspaper in Nicaragua, had to close down. That part of the strategy of Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo had been to eliminate any independent media reporting. They bought newspapers, they bought television network where they reported um, every single day their version of the truth. Over the last decade, the president and his family have quietly built a vast media empire, gaining ownership or control of nearly every news outlet in the country. Daniel Ortega has come a long way. In the 1970s, he was a socialist revolutionary in the Sandinista National Liberation Front, which in 1979 toppled the US-backed Somoza dictatorship 
a political dynasty that had ruled Nicaragua for decades. In 1984, Ortega became president in the first free election in Nicaragua's history. He was voted out and returned to power in 2007 with the help and media savvy of his wife and vice president, Rosario Murillo. Murillo is the face of the government's propaganda, its chief spokeswoman and media strategist. In Nicaragua, we have a family dictatorship. It is not much different than what the Somoza dictatorship used to be. Ortega, the president, and Rosario Murillo, his wife, they want to impose themselves as a dynasty. And uh, they have imposed a police state in Nicaragua. Muy buenas tardes, compañera. Buenas tardes, querida familia de esta patria bendita. Every day in Nicaragua, around noon, we hear the voice of Rosario Murillo, who is the spokeswoman of the government, que todos merecemos. Un abrazo a nuestro comandante Daniel, compañeros, compañeras, y vamos adelante, siempre más allá, en luz, vida y verdad. And she's not answering any question from any journalist. What you hear is a monologue uh, through the official television and official radio. In that monologue, she may offer peace and love. They will never talk about human rights violations or government corruption. This is simply an alternative reality. The Listening Post requested interviews with Vice President Rosario Murillo, as well as her son, Daniel Edmundo, also a spokesman, but never heard back. Under Ortega's leadership, Nicaragua has come to resemble the dictatorship he helped overthrow. The utopian ideals of the Sandinista revolution eclipsed by the president's dystopian police state. But despite the government's best efforts to muzzle Nicaraguan journalists, there are those who continue to speak out, albeit from the shadows. They thought that closing down the media, persecuting journalists, and cutting off their sources of income was the only way they were going to stop reporting in Nicaragua. But we have reinvented ourselves. We have found in social media a great ally to be able to continue spreading information. We are still standing. Neither censorship, nor economic oppression, nor the threat of imprisonment, or even death have been able to stop the independent press from playing its role. And finally, it's been two decades since the beginning of the Iraq War in March of 2003. That war was triggered by al-Qaeda's attacks on American targets on September 11, 2001, which Iraq had nothing to do with. Nevertheless, U.S. President George W. Bush set out to topple Iraqi President Saddam Hussein through an invasion that was supposed to last months, if not weeks. It went on for more than seven years. An estimated 1.2 million Iraqis were killed, and the effects of the war still ripple right across the Middle East. We're leaving you now with some snapshots of U.S. media coverage from back in 2003, showing how American reporters and editors helped sell the war by buying into the Bush administration's lies about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, which did not exist. Some visual reminders of just how dangerous bad journalism can be. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. It was just over 90 minutes.
beyond President Bush's deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq, that U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. We have uh, many of our NBC News uh, correspondents uh, so-called embedded in uh, military units, which there is every reason to uh, think, hope, and believe right now are moving, and in some cases moving very quickly through Iraq. All Americans supporting the troops, supporting the effort. Day two of the war objectives. Have they been reached? Well, there are signs tonight that maybe the U.S. bombing campaign is already having a desired effect.